Over the coming months, as we measure how well we're emerging from the pandemic, one data point above all others will be used as a yardstick. GDP. How quickly can we get back to where we were in January 2020? And how can we push on from there? But hold on. What happened to all the talk of building back better? Is economic growth and all the assumptions about human welfare that lie behind it really how we want to measure progress? I'll be discussing this and a great deal more with the renowned thinker who's perhaps the person most widely associated with a critique of the very idea of growth. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. Tim Jackson is the director of the Centre for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity. He's the author of the incredibly influential, multiple prize-winning book, Prosperity Without Growth, and he's just published a radical, wide-ranging and profound sequel, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism. Hi, Tim. How are you? Very good, Matthew. It's good to be with you. Tim, one kind of like a silly question to start, but you quote a lot of people in this book. I want to talk to you about the way that people appear in this book in a moment, but you quote everyone from Emily Dickinson to Greta Thunberg to Bobby Kennedy. The one person you don't quote is yourself. And the reason I thought that was interesting is because your quote, and I'm going to read it back to you, I'm sure you know it off by heart, which is a description of consumerism. You said, people are persuaded to spend money we don't have on things we don't need to create impressions that won't last on people we don't care about. I read that so many times. Were you not tempted at all, Tim, to quote yourself? <laughs> no, no, I wasn't, Matthew. I mean, you know, it's one of those things which you kind of, it comes out of the blue somehow in the middle of, as it was a TED talk at the time. And suddenly, you know, that quote sort of begins to define you. And of course, it's wonderful. People liked it and recognized something in it. But I kind of, I've used it a lot. And in a way, actually writing a, you call it a sequel. In some ways, it was a kind of prequel, I think. Maybe we can talk about why that is. But in writing Postgrace, it's really difficult to kind of separate yourself from an old book when you're trying to write a new one. And I think that would have tied me too much to it. So I kind of wanted to, quoting the other people and the journey of that, thinking of those lives of those other people was a really important part of what I was doing. Tying myself to my own thinking was something I wanted to cut, if you like, cutting the ties that bind. No, I'm sure it was the right idea. But it must just be amazing to be associated with such a great quote, and one that you know goes to the heart of your work as well. Now, so let me just be clear then. So there's a kind of Star Wars element to this, which is that you want, although this book has been published after Growth Without Prosperity, you want people to maybe think about it as something which, in a sense, precedes it. I'm not sure that they need to think about it as something that precedes it. But for me, it kind of is because it goes back to a sort of more philosophical exploration, I suppose. When I wrote Prosperity Without Growth, I was I was basically economics commissioner for the Sustainable Development Commission reporting to the UK government, reporting to the prime minister, actually, at that time. And so it was a policy document that came out of that position. And it was written in a very particular way. And as it made its way around the world, which again was fantastic, a humbling experience in many ways, I began to wonder about the things I'd kind of left out of the journey and feel inclined to kind of go back to them. And they're not 
you know, postgraph is not a policy document. It's not something designed to be read by policymakers to be implemented on Monday. In some ways, it's speaking to the audience, the unexpected audience that I never really imagined would appreciate prosperity without growth in the way that they did. But, you know, they didn't necessarily want all the graphs and policy recommendations, and they were fanatically interested in the kind of underlying philosophical conversations. And I, I felt that I hadn't done justice to that in Prosperity Without Growth, and it's what I wanted to explore in post-growth. Yeah, it's a marvellous book. It's it's philosophical, it's elegiac, it's it's full of wonderful stories and I mean, I absolutely love reading. I'm going to come at the end because I am a policy wonk to this question of your decision not to talk about any of the practicalities of this. But we'll get we'll get to that in time. But but let's first talk, let's talk about this question of people in the book. The, the book is structured. It's a very deep book. I mean, it's a book I kind of kept putting down in order that I could just think about it a bit before I carried on reading it. But yet, one of the ways in which you've made it very accessible is to build the chapters around people and the stories of people. Tell us why you did that and pick out a couple of those people as examples. Well, I suppose the starting person, the Bobby Kennedy story, is really kind of obvious in a way because he, 50 years ago, 50-something years ago, had already foreseen the problems with the GDP and the problems with economic growth. And his speech from the University of Kansas in March of 1968 became a sort of poster speech for those of us who have been critiquing growth. And, and the fact that it was so long ago and so little notice had been taken of it, in some ways, is quite profound. But it's sort of you know, it always struck me in a way that it kicked off a sort of debate about statistics, which found its way into the OECD, for example, in their beyond GDP work. But when you go back to the original speech, you kind of want to know, you know, what was driving him, because it's a very poetic speech. It's a very profound speech. It has this philosophical element. It was a speech to, a, you know, a crowd of some thousands of people gathered together in a university basketball arena. 53 years ago. And you kind of want to know about the man. You want to know where that thinking came from. You want to know why he arrived at that point in that time. And and I had the good fortune at one stage to sit on a platform with Kerry Kennedy, one of his daughters, and talk to her about it, and followed up with his speechwriter from the time, Adam Valinsky, and began to sort of feel my way into this sense that the story of post-growth and thinking past our existing economic model has a long legacy. And I wanted to explore that legacy. I wanted to make real, if you like, the sense of a line of thought that is countercultural, if that's the right way to describe it, because it challenges the culture of capitalism, the culture of growth, the culture of consumerism, and it has a very long pedigree. And so it was to me partly about kind of anchoring thought in that way. And to take someone from the kind of opposite end of the spectrum, Wangari Matai, her example of the Greenbelt movement in Kenya, it was to me, it was a kind of a, a way of thinking about investment, which is a very capitalist concept in, in many ways. And we've learnt both the upsides and the downsides of investment, particularly since the financial crisis, of course. And in Prosperity Without Growth, I had talked about investment as a commitment to the future. 
And you can make that argument. You can talk about all the reasons what for that and what it might mean in practice and how you reform capital markets and what you do with, with interest-bearing debt and so on. But actually, it's in a way story that kind of reaches through to people who don't spend their lives thinking about capital markets and don't particularly want to. And it's a story that reinforces that same idea that there's a legacy of ideas on which we can build support for a different kind of economics, a different kind of future. So there's lots of people that you might expect to be in a book like this. So Greta Thunberg appears a few times, Wengari Matar, you've talked about, Bobby Kennedy, Lynn Margulis. But who's the person you choose to end up with? Emily Dickinson. Now, I say that partly because there's quite a lot of poetry in the book, and that's one of its charms. But why Emily Dickinson? You you know, you put her at the end for a reason. I don't know. She found herself there. I didn't. <laughs> I mean, it was, I think I say this somewhere at the beginning, I didn't ask, I didn't foresee these people. I didn't really invite them myself. I had the sense that they invited themselves into the book in various ways. And, and I mean, Emily Dickinson was you know, partly inspired by where do we go from here? How do we take hope for the future? And, and there's this wonderful, wonderful poem that I cite there about hope is the thing with feathers. And it became, you know, it became a way of drawing the book to its close. But it also had this, you know, extraordinary, there was a, a sort of extraordinary serendipities, coincidences, like the fact that basically Emily Dickinson spent most of her adult life locked down. She was in lockdown through choices, really, that she made, and we don't entirely understand them at the time, but we do know that she barely left the house for the last kind of decade or so of her life and spent it, actually, in very much the same sorts of conditions that we were at the time I was writing it, spending our lives and made of it, you know, in the same way that we've tried to do through the pandemic as much as she could in the best ways that she could and to maintain her spirits and her sense of hope. And it drew me towards her writing in a different way, I suppose. It made me it made me understand some of the things that she was doing with language. And and it had some extraordinary resonances with some of the earlier bits of the book, which was, you know, her work has been compared to the work of Martin Heidegger, for example, who was the first professor under whom Hannah Arendt studied when she was in Germany. And, and they between them, they have Hannah Arendt is another character in the book, for those who don't know. And between them, they kind of constructed this idea which somehow synthesized my own sense that ideas have a life of their own. They have a language of their own. They're propagated not through rational discourse always or calculus or the machinations of policy. They actually live in a space that we share because these ideas are shared, because language is shared, because language itself embodies spaces that we can achieve through poetry in ways that we can't achieve it through, you know, academic papers published in peer-reviewed journals, for instance. And so she she became, if you like, a sort of place to come back to the centrality of that idea that, that ideas matter and that poetic ideas matter and the poetic expression of ideas matters. And that the poetic expression of ideas can allow us to deal with really difficult concepts like our own mortality and the loss of the people that we love, and yet to find 
in that context this elusive characteristic of hope and she was you know it's it's funny getting into the sort of the minds and the work of people at that kind of depth you begin to you sort of begin to assimilate something of their thought worlds and that process of assimilation was very important to what i was trying to do there's something here tim for me about the kind of notion of unlearning i remember a long long time ago I had a a girlfriend who was an artist and she explained to me that for her, the critical thing to be able to be an artist was the capacity to be able to look, for example, at a flower as if you had never seen one before. But this is very difficult because from the age of two, you first time you draw a flower and it looks like a particular notion of a flower with a straight stem and a set of symmetrical circle petals that go around the middle of it. And, And I think Poets help us unlearn as well. Poets help us understand that the way in which we view reality is something that we have been socialized into and that we can't really glimpse full possibilities unless we can somehow glimpse behind that veil which we've worn since our earliest understandings. And then the link here is that you want to say that economics And the way we think about economics, the way the economists talk about progress and growth, is one of those kind of ideas that we have to unlearn. So is is unlearning the link here between your kind of economic argument and your interest in poetry? It definitely is partly. I mean, that's fascinating as you talk about that. I'm reminded, I've just been looking at it actually, which is a quote from Jeff Bezos. He has this Obviously, innovation is kind of a part of his ethos as a leader. And at one point, he's talked about how a a successful enterprise always has to stay at day one. And there's this wonderful speech at one point where he talks about, what does day two look like? I think I know the answer to this one. Day two is stasis, followed by irrelevance, followed by slow and steady decline, followed by death. And that is why... It is always day one. And his audience loves it because it's a kind of icon of the spirit of innovation that's supposed to drive it. And it is, it is a way, it, you know, it has a kind of logic. It does talk to us about that idea of, as David Suzuki once put it, Zen mind, beginner's mind, seeing the world anew every day and seeing the possibilities anew every day. So there is, there is something of that. But, you know, there's also within that Jeff Bezos speech, there's a really insightful finding, which is that part of what drives the most successful business person in the world is a deep anxiety about irrelevance and mortality. Absolutely. I'm only going to ask you two policy wonk type questions, because as you've said, this isn't a policy manifesto kind of book. But I just want to clarify one thing. The book is a critique of capitalism. It's a critique of the fact that capitalism relies upon an energy which is unsustainable and that it has to do things to us. It has to make us feel constantly anxious and unhappy and unfulfilled. And it plays into our need for distraction from fundamental truths like mortality. So it is a critique of capitalism, a very deep and thoughtful critique of capitalism. But you're not 
opposed to markets or shops or commerce are you you know you talk about key workers at various points you you don't want a kind of state totalitarian system so just help me understand i know it is a bit of a wonky question but can capitalism be tamed do you think what does survive in a capitalism which is not manic and unsustainable yeah i'm not someone who who is a kind of you know let's overthrow everything get rid of markets take economics out of the curriculum person because actually i feel that economics does have a job to do and i feel that markets have a job to do i am very critical of the way that capitalism has organized those markets and particularly a particular criticism from me and and i think it's a very topical very relevant one is the way in which it has systematically immiserated sections of the working population and it's particularly striking it was you know extraordinary in a way we had a lesson an object lesson in that that the people whose lifestyles and livelihoods had been more and more precarious were precisely the people it turned out we needed more than ever during the pandemic, they were the people who really mattered, the people at the front line, the care workers, the delivery people, the cleaners, for goodness sake, cleaning turned out to be a massively important thing to have in our society. And yet the people who did it, you know, these were jobs that you didn't want, you didn't want to be consigned to. And when you look at that, actually, you find that there is within capitalism a mechanism, and it's a very peculiar one in some ways to focus on, and it's a very economic one to focus on a mechanism which aligned with a kind of process of profit maximization makes it difficult to support those livelihoods within the structure of the markets and the economy that we have and it's this idea of the continual pursuit of labor productivity and basically you know nurses are not that able to continually increase their labor productivity. It's about the value of nurses is the time they spend in caring for their patients. And so there's a, there's a set of activities. Care is one of them. Craft is another, perhaps, creativity and the arts. There's a set of activities that are deeply enriching to our lives that capitalism just does not handle well. Capitalism is after the fast gain, the next technology, the big bubble that's going to inflate the value of stocks and shares, increase the efficiency with which we produce goods and allow us to have more and more tomorrow. It's been very good at that game up to a certain point, but the casualties of that game are deeply profound and potentially tragic to our civilized society and that i think is a really tough problem for capitalism to crack without having a long hard look at itself i'm not saying it's entirely unsolvable and we've certainly had attempts to you know to have responsible capitalism or shareholder capitalism or stakeholder capitalism you know various ways of making making that work better and i think i think they failed I honestly think that they've been more responsible for a kind of green and redwashing of capitalism than they have of real change. And that we are now in a position where we have to take seriously the idea that we've invested in an economic model that is immiserating the most important people in our society. And we have to find a way to change that. And, and, and the pandemic was a, you know, was a kind of object lesson in that. So I'll come back to that right at the end, Tim. And I, I think I'm going to suggest that somehow it's definancializing capitalism, which is the, the step that we need to first take. But I want to address another really big theme 
in the book and one which made me kind of cheer because it's an obsession of mine and that's the notion of balance. So a lot of the book is around the search for balance in our lives and I have my own kind of way of thinking about this. You mentioned, I think you do mention Mary Douglas at one point in the book, but I have a a way of looking at this based on the work of Mary Douglas anthropologist and some of her followers and in that it argues, and there's elements of, you can hear overtones of Freud here, but it also aligns with lots of other different theories, which use the same kind of ideas. The idea is that there are basically three fundamental forms of human motivation. We're motivated by authority, you know, hierarchy, strategy, rules, all of that kind of stuff. We do what we're told. Secondly, we're motivated by belonging, by values, by the tribe that we want to be part of, the sense of what we ought to do given the kind of person that we are. And then thirdly, we're motivated by our own life force, a desire to be the authors of our own lives. And in psychology, they talk about mastery, autonomy, and connectedness as the fundamental drives. Now, there's two reasons why I particularly like the work of Mary Douglas and her followers. The first is that they recognize that getting a balance between these things is incredibly difficult. It's, you know, it's not just that you go around thinking, well, I, if I fulfill these needs, because these needs are continuously pushing against each other, at each other, and finding balance is incredibly hard work. That's why there's an echo of Freud here. But the other thing is that uniquely, I think, and there are lots of schema that use this idea of, you know, authority, hierarchy, solidarity, connectedness, individualism, autonomy. Mary Douglas and her followers talk about fatalism. They have a fourth category, which is, as it were, the absence of motivation. And your work in this book, you're absolutely, again, recognizing the importance of fatalism and managing of fatalism and linking it, as many do, like Ernest Becker, you quote again in the book, to the fact that we are perhaps not uniquely amongst the species aware of our death, but uniquely culturally, as it were, aware of our death. So, Talk to me about this notion of that, because you are, in some ways, you're quite a kind of ideological thinker in in the sense that you have a strong view of how the world needs to change, and it's a radical view of how the world needs to change. And so in some senses, this emphasis on balance is almost almost kind of surprising because of the radicalism of your vision. So talk to us about balance first. Hmm. Yeah, no, the balance balance came in when I was looking... Basically, I mean, it kind of first came in, I suppose, when I was looking at Mill. I mean, Mill's story is absolutely fascinating because John Stuart Mill was, you know, a founding father of the economics that we inherited, the idea of utilitarianism and and therefore of a kind of calculus of happiness for our lives. And yet at a certain point in his life, he had this extraordinary kind of breakdown, we would call it, I suppose, at least a mental health crisis in his early 20s. And actually, you know, the realization that he very slowly came to through that was how unbalanced his life was and that and that his health depended on things other than this incredible cause to create a better society that he was engaged in from a very, very young age. And then as I began to think about, you know, what constitutes the good life, that chapter around Mill is very much around what constitutes the good life, you're inevitably drawn to Aristotle and the idea, actually, that the good or virtue in Aristotle's terms is a kind of balancing point. And when Aristotle talks about virtue, he doesn't mean it in a moralistic way, as we use that term to 
today. He used it in the sense of kind of virtuousness or virtuosity, if you like, rather than virtue itself. So, you know, I use in the book, I talk about this kind of example of a knife. You know, you don't necessarily need a very, very sharp knife in all circumstances. There's occasions when you're in the kitchen cutting carrots in which having an extraordinarily sharp knife is a bad thing. It's not good to have more and more of sharpness in those circumstances. It's actually a balance that is defined by the quality of where you are, the time that you're engaged in, the activity that you're engaged in. And this this suddenly struck me, actually, that it's this idea of the good life as being something around balanced that is entirely overturned by the logic of capitalism and growth because it does not recognize that point of balance. It makes it impossible to see when you are at that point of balance and it's continually pushing you out of balance. One of the things that I talk about in the book is how that works in relation to to food and the availability of food and the increase of overweight and obesity as medical problems in our society and the sense, in fact, that the statistic from the World Health Organization that actually more people die today as a result of diseases caused by overnutrition than die from undernutrition. And it's it's an extraordinary indictment of a system that does not recognize balance and that to me you know became then a sort of theme not just for thinking about physiological health but actually thinking about the psychological and social and possibly even planetary conditions of the good life so the book isn't clunky at all, and therefore I feel kind of slightly bad when I try to condense it into a kind of clunky hypothesis. But it seems to me that in a sense what you're arguing, the argument you build up beautifully layer by layer in this book, is that being alive as a human being is a pretty difficult and challenging project, but one that can, if we do it right, be joyful and amazing in this brief time that we have on Earth. That two of the things that make it really difficult is the first is this balance that we don't seem to have a kind of natural spirit level within ourselves. We have to find it. We have to earn it. We have to deal with the dilemmas. We have to control our appetites, particularly in the modern world. So the first is the difficulty of finding balance. And the second is the difficulty of coping with our mortality. And that in a sense, your argument is, as you've just put it, that capitalism understands, we talk about capitalism personifying it here, but marketers, advertisers, understand that we are trying to cope with the achievement of balance and our awareness of our mortality. And they enable us through the kind of mania of consumerism and acquisitiveness to believe that we can somehow escape this rather than trying to find a way of living with it, as Freud put it once, <laughs> replacing hysterical neurosis with everyday melancholy. So fatalism, I'm fascinated by fatalism. I've, I talked earlier about it. I, too, am a great fan of Ernest Becker's book, The Denial of Death, a really important book, I think, made all the more poignant by the fact that he finished it just as he was dying himself. I think that the decline of religion in societies like ours one of the biggest problems about the decline of religion is religion is where we took our fatalism. On the one hand, it kind of allowed us to recognize how small and tiny we were in the face of the deity. But on the other, it kind of said, and don't worry, 
all of this will be over and something better will come along. And we've lost that now. We've lost those ways of dealing with our mortality and it becomes almost unbearable. And I, I think you want to argue we've got to find a way of living with our mortality if we're going to resist the manic appeal of consumer capitalism. I think that's right. I mean, this is one of those places where post-growth is a prequel because some years ago I'd written about a concept called theodicy, which is a kind of justification of the ways of God. It was a big sort of theological debate in the 1850s, and Archbishop William Paley was kind of accused of creating this sort of rose-tinted vision of God where it didn't really matter all your sufferings in the world because justice would come through the beneficence of the Almighty and you'd find your place in heaven and reward would be there. And this was what theologians would call a theodicy. It was a justification of, of suffering and loss and grief and mortality and everything that we cope with in the human condition through the beneficence, if you like, of God. And then the argument was, well, if he's so, you know, if he's so all-powerful, this God, why doesn't he just take that suffering away? Because whatever comes later, it's pretty bad for all those people who are going through it. And you can never fully get rid of it. And that was one of Malthus's points, actually, in Malthusian turn, if you like, was to say, well, we're living on a finite world where population is increasing faster than the means of subsistence, and therefore, inevitably, you're consigning, God is consigning some people to these really bad lives where they're just suffering all the time. And, and theologians kind of wrap themselves in knots around this question of, you know, how could you even justify a God who either had no omnipotence or had no benevolence and was consigning people to inevitable suffering? And Becker takes that, and he has this wonderful quote about a planet soaked for millions of years in the blood of all its species as being the foundations of our understandings of, of civilization. And I found this, you know, I found these arguments when I was looking at them probably 10, 15 years ago, absolutely fascinating because they resonated with work that I was doing on consumerism. And it was not a sort of, you know, environmentalist anti-consumerist position. It was trying deliberately to understand the lure of consumerism, that persuading of us. Why is it so easy to persuade us to buy all those things that we don't need with money that we don't have? Because, in fact, consumerism is a kind of theodicy. It's a kind of consolation. And we even did some work which kind of teased apart all of the qualities that a theodicy has to have and showed that actually consumerism has them. It has a kind of transcendent quality. It has a, a quality of consolation. It has a quality of what theologians call eschatology. Everything will be all right in the end because even if you don't have a wonderfully materialistic life, your kids are going to be able to have it because there's always going to be more and more into the future. Consumerism offers us all this. And that, it seems to be, you know, you can see this as in some sense a consequence of the decline of a religious theodicy. Theodicy is a fundamental task in society to make it reasonable to live in a world shot through with suffering, grief, and loss. And there, I think, is where Becker's work becomes so important. Because if we blindly fall into this denial of our own death, then we are subject to the persuasion of the marketeers and the lure of consumerism and the false gods of glitter and bling 
that are destroying the planet and even undermining our own sense of autonomy, undermining some of our psychological goods through the power that they have over our lives. So there is, it seems to me, you know, a very distinct ask there that we kind of wake up to that and we begin to build a kind of theodicy that isn't necessarily religious, but doesn't rely on the lure of a totally unsustainable consumerism. And it it has, I think, to start by addressing some of that anxiety that lives beneath the surface of capitalism. So last question, Tim, I'm going to ask you to signpost us to some more policy-oriented work before we absolutely finish. But one last question before we do that, which is, you know, you're of a certain age, just kind of around the same age as me, that you don't, you resist the vanity of having your own quotes, but you can't quite resist the vanity of having a rather fetching photograph of yourself in a leather jacket on the back page looking 10 years younger than you are. I'm kind of... I'm interested. You don't talk That's about ages. That's very harsh, Matthew. <laughs> I think I still look that good. I was, you know, I was tempted by one of me at twenty. I'm not saying you don't look like that. I'm just saying that it's, you know, brings out the best of you, mate. Listen, yeah. you don't talk about ageism in the book, but it does. I would suggest that one thing we need to do as part of a kind of project of trying to resist the mania that you describe is also to tackle ageism, because I think that while some people become even more materialistic and consumeristic in old age, which I think just looks completely kind of ridiculous and crazy. I think most of us, as we get older, become less interested in shopping and less interested in a narrowly acquisitive account, less interested, more interested in friends and family, less interested in our own personal success and aggrandizement. So Plato made this argument, you know, about lust and about, you know, there's one of his characters, you know, talked about the enormous liberation of being old because he no longer had to suffer being pulled at by the wild horses of lust. Is there something here, Tim, about if we had a less ageist society, if we valued wisdom a bit more, one of the messages that we might hear more often from older people is in the end, a lot of this stuff doesn't matter quite as much as you think it does. And other stuff, like your health, like your friendship, like your family, like nature, the planet, these things matter a bit more? I think it's interesting to to think about that. I'm not sure. I do think it's come with this sort of furious sense of of innovation, the latest frontier, the new kid on the block, you know, the the detention economy of celebrity status and visual identity, that's inevitably kind of shortened our sense and our concern for both older people in our society, but even people who came before us, their views are sort of deemed irrelevant in this at the frontier of of continual innovation. And so I do think, you know, maybe that is a way of bringing back a conversation about rootedness and about inheritance and about the wisdom of age. But I, I wouldn't, 
I guess I wouldn't want to just think that's what I'm saying or that that's just what I'm doing. Yes, I'm an older person. I'm thinking about my legacy. I'm writing these things down. I'm not going to admit to not being pulled by the horses of lust anymore. And therefore, I definitely want a reasonably good looking photograph of myself inside the book cover, <laughs> even though to be, you know, just the old cards on the table, it was the publisher who suggested that to me. But I did spend an enormous I think he protested too much. Uh, maybe, maybe, because it was really anxiety inducing, I have to say, as is the sort of whole culture of, you know, how you present yourself during a lockdown. I think it's incredibly insightful. But what I was going to say is, I don't want to leave the impression that that's all that I'm saying, because I think I'm saying something for younger people that's much more important than that 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 actually the energy of youth the drive of youth the insight of youth the vision of youth actually is being subjugated to a false promise and a false dream it's standing in the way of its own realization and that's one of the things that we haven't talked about really today but this concept of flow which i introduce a psychological concept of flow this ability to be involved in a task in which you are intrinsically motivated to the point at which actually you the task and the world become one is something that i would want every kid to know about to have experienced by the time they reach adolescent and to be competent in their entire lives because actually this to me is the kind of energy of the world it's not a continual innovation necessarily it's a process of embedding ourselves in something which gives us longevity at the same time as it's instantaneously an incredibly fulfilling place to be and experience. It contributes to the world at the same time as making that anxiety around the self less relevant to us. It's almost, you know, you lose that anxiety in the moments where you achieve flow. And yet you're actually at that point more fully in the world than you have ever been when you're worrying about you know, what you look like on your selfies. And I, I guess that in a way, you know, it's a sort of a project I've found I'm struggling and I struggled in the book for a way to sort of characterize it with an ism. But it's a sort of a belief that the potential of human beings is being undermined by capitalism and that there's a kind of new humanism or something along those lines waiting in the wings, which actually will be what we need because it's a bigger, better, more honest promise for people's fulfillment than anything that consumerism can offer. What a wonderful way to end our conversation, Tim. I can strongly recommend Post-Growth Life After Capitalism. It's a wonderful read full of memorable ideas and portraits. I'm not going to ask you <laughs> I'm not going to ask you about the practical policy side of all this, because that's not what the book's about. What I am going to ask you, though, is for people who've listened to this and said, OK, I want to jump on the post-growth wagon, but how do we do it? Tell them about your centre or tell them where they should go if they want to start thinking about some of the practical questions about how we might move to a post-growth economy. Well, I do think one of the things I wanted to do in the book and, and the conversation that we've had today is a kind of fantastic example of that is, is to create that conversation, to create it in a, in a social way. And that's one of the tasks 
that we have done in CUSP, the Centre for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity. We have a, a series of dialogues which was chaired, has been chaired up to now by Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury. And it's been a fantastic place to, you know, to have some of these discussions. And, and that resource is online at on the CUSP website, cusp.ac.uk. And another really important part of the work, it seems to me, aside from that conversation, is the hard, gritty work of figuring out how an economy might work under these post-growth conditions. That seems to be an urgent task, not just because of all the things that we've talked about at the moment, but actually because in reality we are more or less living under conditions of post-growth. So we have to be able to get that right and not rely on the dogma of the past to lead us into the future that we're now facing. Tim, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Matthew. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.